Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Genesis 16. As we continue to look at the life and times of the great patriarch, Abram, your spiritual father in the faith. Uh, I've decided this holiday season to not break away from our current sermon series. We're just going to keep moving forward uh, in Genesis. Uh, Christmas is about Jesus, and so is the entire Bible. And so I trust that our exploration of Genesis will be used by God to help you keep your sights on the Savior this season. Uh, keeping your sights on the Savior, on the promises of the gospel, is ultimately what the life of faith is all about. Today, uh, 2,000 years after the coming of Christ, we by faith look backwards to Christ's work on the cross for our salvation. That's what it was like for the man Abram who lived 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. He was keeping his sights set on the Savior by looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's promise of the gospel. God had promised Abram offspring, and that offspring would be given a land, and in that land and through that offspring would arise one born in Bethlehem who would come to save the world. And we saw in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abram's response to the gospel was faith. It said that Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abram is saved just like believers today are saved through faith in the gospel. And through faith in His promise, we then receive God's perfect righteousness, and therefore our sins are no longer counted against us. We are forgiven, and now we are in right relationship with God. Now, Abram had a tremendous mountaintop faith experience in Genesis chapter 15, and we all love mountaintop experiences. We all want mountaintop experiences in, in, in our, our modern Christian pop, pop culture. We work hard to create mountaintop experiences. We have endless uh, conferences and, and worship conferences and, and, and all those sorts of things, and there's nothing in and of themselves uh, wrong with those things, but the, but the problem is we might become dependent on those things. Uh, mountaintop experiences are not meant to be the norm for the Christian life. In fact, we're told in James chapter 1 that the means God grows us in our faith is not on the mountaintop, but in the valley through trials of various kinds. And the trial in Genesis 16 is a trial not of persecution, not of physical danger, but it's another kind of trial that really can be just as difficult, and it's the trial of waiting, waiting on God. So now let's leave the mountaintop of Genesis 15, and let's go into the valley of Genesis 16 with the expectation that God has something for us in that valley this morning. So let's find out what it is. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We are in Genesis chapter 16. And we're going to read the entire chapter. Word of the Lord says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, <clears throat> the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Ru'ai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word, and I I pray that you would help us to treat it as such. Uh, These are not fables. These are not fairy tales. Uh, This is history, but it's more than mere history. Uh, It is your message to your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and 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 hearts to learn, and faith to trust in your message, in your word this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pardon me again for the occasional water break. A little holiday bug that's been going around, and I got it too. So I got a question for you. How many of you, show fans, how many of you like to wait? Okay, nobody. All right, I kind of expected that. Uh, that's not really something that comes to us naturally, right? Um, it's Christmas time. Uh, many of you have little boys and girls in your household, and one of the most difficult things for them this time of year is waiting. It's hard to it's hard to wait. And that's not just a kid thing that carries on into adult life, right? Uh, We hate waiting. Uh, We hate being put on hold when we call customer service. Uh, We hate waiting in line at the grocery store, especially when the person in front of us pulls out their checkbook and starts slowly writing, and we're like, don't people use cards anymore? We hate waiting. But but waiting uh, can be a gift in the sense that it can be very instructive, Because there's something about waiting that reveals something in your character. 
Let me ask you this. What kind of person are you when you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic on 85 South? That can be revealing. Or what's happening in your head and in your heart when there's something that you desperately want and, and, and there, there, there's somebody or there's something that's getting in the way of that and it's preventing you from getting what you want right now. Waiting is hard, especially when we're going through something painful and we're waiting for relief and resolution. And of course, we all wait for that day when we will have a full and complete 100% victory over sin in the new heavens and the new earth, and, and we'll be in that place where we will enjoy no more sickness and sorrow and pain and broken relationships, and we, and we won't experience death. Heaven will surely be one glorious mountaintop experience after another. We hate waiting, but it is through the cauldron of waiting that God does some of His hardest and some of His best work in our hearts, or He reveals things in us that otherwise would not be exposed but need to be exposed and dealt with. God's main work in your life is to wean you off of self, self-dependence, self-reliance, self-confidence, and to get you to rely on, depend on, and be confident in God more and more. Reliance and dependence on God, confidence in Him is the key to more peace, more contentment, more security, more joy, less fear, less anxiety for you, and most importantly, more glory for Him. As God and His Word are seen increasingly as that which your your life is utterly built on. And it is through the waiting where we'll often learn the crucial lessons of how to rely on God more and on ourselves less. Now, as we move through the text this morning, I'd like to briefly put the spotlight on each character in this drama and see what God is showing us through each one. And the first thing that I'd like to consider this morning is Sarai's impatience. Sarai's impatience. Look how the text starts. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, infertility at any time and in any culture, is a very hard thing for a family to go through. It was an especially grievous thing in the ancient Near East where children were highly prized and valued and seen as the ones who would carry on the the family name, the family line, the inheritance. And so in a real sense, to not have a child meant to not have a future. But childlessness would have been an even bigger problem for Sarai. Because God had specifically promised that through the offspring of Abram, through her family, would come worldwide blessing and salvation. And so in light of this, to not have offspring meant to also not have a spiritual future. This is a big deal. And you can imagine how hard this would have been for Sarai year after year. Decade after decade, still no son, still no baby. She's now in her 70s. And Sarai is feeling the weight of the world on her shoulders as she is waiting on God. And so, she makes a decision to take matters into her own hands. Verse 1 tells us that she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, is Sarai right or wrong in that statement? 
She's, she's, she's right. It's not a quick, quick uh, trick question there. She's right. Uh, God is sovereign over the womb. There's no question about that. Sarai here is expressing great Reformed theology. Kind of. Because right theology is more than simply articulating correct things about God. Theology done rightly will also be rightly applied. Seeing this truth of God's sovereignty through the eyes of faith would have been a great comfort to her and would have led her to expect that God was about to do something amazing and that hope could have helped her in the waiting. But for Sarai, the sovereignty of God is not a comforting doctrine. It has instead become an obstacle in the way of her getting what she wants right now. Sarai's declaration that the Lord has prevented her from having children carries the ring of disappointment with God and even blame. And so, instead of continuing to wait on the Lord, she has a plan. Verse 2, she counsels Abram. We've heard of biblical counseling. (laughs) This is unbiblical counseling. Verse 2, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this was a practice that was sociably, socially acceptable and legal throughout the ancient world where a, a wife could give her servant to her husband and whatever children the servant had would count as the wife's. But just because something is legal and just because something is socially acceptable does not mean that it's right. In fact, there are many things that are both legal and socially acceptable in the prevailing culture then and now, but are reprehensible in the eyes of God. You can probably think of things coming to your mind even now in our culture today, things that are acceptable, things that are even applauded, and yet God does not approve of it. So don't think that Genesis 16 and detailing the actions of Abram and Sarai constitute an endorsement of the practice of polygamy. It doesn't. In fact, if you read Genesis 16 in context, you can't help but have your mind uh, go back to what was written just a few chapters back in Genesis 2.24, where Moses, writing about marriage, says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's God's doctrine of marriage. One man one woman for life, period. No, no third or, or fourth or fifth parties involved in this situation. Thank you very much. This is God's plan and God's way. But Sarai isn't interested in that in this moment. She doesn't consult the Lord, and neither does Abram. Now, Sarai wants something good. Make no mistake about that. She wants a child, and she wants to see the promises of God come to fruition. That's good. But she wants it so much that she does something wrong. And her weariness of waiting on God and her desperation drives her to this plan. And Sarai falls into the trap that many of us fall into, and that's making decisions primarily on expediency and getting the results we want in our way and in our time. And she turns away from trusting in the Lord, and she turns now to self-effort and human strength and human means, taking matters into her own hands to obtain her desires. John Calvin writes that however laudable was Sarai's wish as regards to the end, 
Nevertheless, in the pursuit of it, she was guilty of no light sin by impatiently departing from the Word of God for the purpose of enjoying the effect of that Word. Now, that, that's brilliantly said. That was Calvin, not me. Most things you hear that are brilliant are from someone else, not me. But basically, Calvin's point is that good ends can never justify unbiblical means. And sometimes that's the biggest trap for believers. Uh, not that we would fall into obvious, blatant rebellion, but that we desire something that is good, uh, but we want it so much that we are willing to sin to get it. And at that point, when we do that, we've actually crossed over from obedience into idolatry, where the thing that we are desperate for becomes more important than waiting on God and obeying His Word and doing things His way. And so I would caution all of us to examine our desires, especially our desires for good things, because those desires become so overwhelming sometimes that that it can cause us to compromise our faith and our integrity to fulfill those desires, opening up the door to all kinds of sins and disobedience to God's Word that we never thought that we would commit. For example, Christians can have a good desire to get married, But as the years pass and the person still is not married, it gets very hard to wait on God. And I've seen Christians in their desperate impatience try to make something happen and will become romantically entangled with an unbeliever in spite of God's word of warning to the contrary. And maybe even justify it by saying, well, well, this is this is missionary dating. I could lead this person to the to the Lord through my witness. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's one basic desire there that is, that is good to, to, to get married, but, the, but the, the waiting gets so hard and the desperation becomes so intense that we begin to cast the wisdom of God's Word aside and we begin to do things our own way, and at that point, it becomes sin. Uh, another example, a, a church can have a good desire to, to build relationships and make connections with unbelievers in the community so that they can tell them about God. That's a good desire. That's a good thing. But that desire can morph into a compromising of God's Word, uh, maybe softening what the Bible says about sin and, and, and about God's judgment in order to, to draw crowds to the, to the church, to, to maybe uh, make the message a little bit more uh, uh, palpable, easier to, to stomach to get people through the doors. There are many ways a believer can turn away from trusting God and and instead try to manipulate the circumstances to get a desired outcome. But the ends never justify the means. And Sarai, in her desperation, has a hard time seeing that. But Sarai isn't the only person to fall into sinful unbelief in our text. And so we move from Sarai's impatience to Abram's compliance. Look at the end of verse 2. Says Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. <clears throat> Text says, Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai. <clears throat> now, let me just say one thing, husbands it is a good thing to listen to the voice of your wife. We would do well to listen to our wives more often. But there is definitely one occasion when we should not listen to our wives. And that is when our wives are speaking words of unbelief. Words that are leading us away from God and into sin. 
Sarai shares with Abram her scheme, and we are told that Abram listened to the voice of his wife. The idea is not just hearing his wife, but obeying his wife. Uh, The language of Abram listening to his wife might sound familiar to you. Uh, That exact phrase is found in one other place in the book of Genesis, and it's in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man where it says that Adam listened to the voice of his wife, Eve. Like Abram, Adam obeyed his wife when she was leading him down a sinful path. In fact, there are a number of of linguistic and thematic parallels between Genesis 16 and Genesis 3. Uh, In Genesis 16.3, it says that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. In Genesis 3.6, it says that Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. Uh, In both Genesis 3 and in Genesis 16, the wife takes the lead in a spiritual matter, leading the family into rebellion. And most notably, Adam and Abram are incredibly compliant and passive, following their wives into rebellion against God and into unbelief. And it is this particular point where Abram fails. There's a saying that you sometimes hear, happy wife happy life. You've heard that before. And sometimes, maybe not all the time, but sometimes what it seems like people mean by that is just do whatever you can to keep your wife happy. Now, some of you wives might be saying amen to that, but hang on for a second. (laughs) Hang on for a second. Uh, Do whatever you can to keep your wife happy. Agree with her. Do whatever she says. Let her have her way, and things will go well with you. And maybe in one sense that's true. (laughs) But if that's what's meant by the phrase, that's clearly wrong. A husband's primary aim is not to submit to his wife to pacify her. Instead, Ephesians 5 says that the role of the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And how did Christ love the church? By dying to himself and living in such a way that would be to his bride's spiritual advantage. Ephesians describes Christ as sanctifying His bride, the church, uh, working to aid in her holiness and cleansing her by the washing of water with the Word of God. In like manner, uh, husbands are to be a help, not a hindrance to their wives' spiritual growth and well-being, and part of that means having the courage to stand on God's Word. You see, both Adam and Abram failed to be spiritual leaders in their homes. In Genesis chapter 3, when Eve offered Adam the forbidden fruit, Adam should have stood on God's Word and refused. But even before it got to that point, Adam should not have let Eve converse with the serpent in the first place, uh, letting her mind be filled with the serpent's lies. Instead, Adam should have been speaking God's truth to her, cleansing his wife spiritually by the washing of the water of God's Word. But Adam didn't do that. Uh, Genesis 3 says he was with Eve. When all that was going down at the tree, he was there. He was with her, just passively standing by and letting his wife take charge of the situation, even though he knew, he knew she was taking them down a spiritually suicidal path, and he did nothing. In the same way, Abram missed an opportunity to encourage Sarai in her faith with, and with godly leadership stand on God's Word and God's promises. Instead, he passively uh, says, yes, dear. It goes along with Sarai's suggestion. 
Husbands, let me just talk to the husbands for a second. I want to challenge you to not be afraid of challenging your wives if they ever speak or suggest something that is unbiblical. And guess what, guys? Because your wife is a sinner like you, sometimes she will say and suggest some things that are off. And by the way, you will too. And in those instances, your wife needs to have the courage to challenge you because her first loyalty is not to you, it's to God. But men, I'm putting the the onus on you, especially in particular right now, because God has called husbands to be the spiritual leaders in their homes. And so often, at least in America, Christian men are very passive. They don't speak God's Word to their wives in a kind and gentle and loving way. They don't talk about the Scriptures. They don't pray for them. They don't pray with them. They're afraid of their wives. And yes, I grant you guys that sometimes our wives can be intimidating. I get it. They're often smarter than us, more articulate than us, more gifted than us. Some of us have wives that are more spiritually advanced. But nevertheless, men, God has called you for such a time as this to lead your wives and lead your home. And, and, and guys, guess what? Husbands, if, if your wife is godly and wise, guess what? She actually wants you to lead her in spiritual matters. And she wants you to stand up to her if she's pushing the family to go in a direction that isn't biblical. She she will appreciate that, and she'll want to submit to your godly leadership. She's not perfect. She won't always do that perfectly, but that's the heartbeat of a godly and wise woman. In fact, I think Sarai would have responded to Abram's godly leadership if he would have stepped up and did the right thing. Maybe not immediately, but she probably would have eventually come around because 1 Peter chapter 3 describes Sarai as a holy woman who submitted to her husband's leadership. But men, even if we stand on God's Word and we do it in a firm but loving and respectful way and our wives don't come around, nevertheless, if we really love our wives... We're going to stay committed to doing things God's way because God's way is always best for us and for them. But you know what? If we don't love our wives, if we love ourselves and our own comfort more, then like Adam and Abram, we're going to throw the spiritual well-being of our wives under the bus and take the path of least resistance now, even though we know that we'll face consequences for our sin later. Now both... Sarai's impatience and Abram's compliance are sins against God and sins against one another, but they're also sinning against Hagar. Uh, They are treating this woman as a tool. Uh, They don't don't care about her. Uh, They care about her fertility and what she can provide for them. But Hagar isn't innocent either. Yes, she's been sinned against, but she's going to compound all of this by adding her own sin into the mix. This is what happens in human relationships. There's, there's never a completely innocent party, is there? So now we move to Hagar's defiance. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar, that's a euphemism for sexual relations, and she conceived. Now maybe initially, when it was first discovered that Hagar was with child, uh, there was some initial joy and celebration. But any joyfulness there may have been quickly turns sour in the household. Verse 4 says, When she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
As Hagar's belly begins to swell, so does Hagar's head. So does her pride. Now, it's not hard to imagine why she would succumb to something like this. She's been a a servant her whole life. She's been the low person on the totem pole. She probably didn't appreciate Sarai for treating her as some sort of commodity, good for nothing except for producing babies. But now, Hagar's beginning to get a little extra spring in her step. Her head is raised higher. And, and, and remember, in the ancient Near East, having a baby was a big deal. It meant that you were uh, divinely blessed. And guess what? Sarai is still not blessed, but I am. Hagar, who was the servant, now is beginning to look down upon Sarai, the mistress, treating her lightly, even despising her. Solomon, why Solomon, writes this in Proverbs chapter 30. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave, when he becomes a king, and a fool, when he is filled with food, an unloved woman, when she gets a husband, and a maidservant, when she displaces her mistress. Mm, The earth trembles and shakes at such a thing. The idea that Solomon's getting at is that these kinds of people and those kinds of situations can be very difficult, even intolerable people, because they've been, uh, they, they, they've been given things that they can't handle uh, with wisdom. Uh, they can't handle it. And Hagar here is letting everything go to her head, and she probably feels like she is on the fast track to displacing Sarai. She's old. I'm young. She's barren. I'm having a baby. She's going down. I'm on the rise. Her pride goes uh, to her head, and she begins to treat Sarai badly. And Sarai does not take it lightly. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. (laughs) Anyone notice anything odd about Sarai's statement? Whose idea was this whole scheme? Sarai's. Who is Sarai blaming? Abram. Huh? What? Seriously? Some of you are like, "I I think I've had fights like that with my wife, with my husband. And it gets confusing. (laughs) Abram probably feels like he can't win for losing. And he is sitting there, like I think many thick-headed husbands do, scratching their heads. (laughs) Wait a minute. I was just doing what you said, and now you're blaming me? Two things. One, Sarai is doing what we all tend to do in conflict, and that is blame shift. She's not recognizing the fault that she has in all of this. In conflict, we almost always see ourselves as the more innocent party, the more righteous party in the situation. We are much faster to point the finger at the other person than to our own sin and deal with it. On the other hand, Sarai's words actually ring with some truth to me. While she may here just be lashing out in anger, honestly, when she accuses Abram of doing wrong, I think that's probably the most accurate thing she has said in this whole chapter. 
Abram had done her wrong by listening to her stupid advice, her sinful advice. Abram, maybe in an attempt to take the path of least resistance and not stand against his wife then, has to deal with a worse storm of Sarai's anger now. Kicking the can down the road doesn't help, guys. Abram's passivity has made things worse. And I agree with Sarai. He has done her wrong. Now, all three characters in this strange triangle are sinning. But I lay the weight of blame mostly at Abram's feet as he was the leader of the home. In the same way that God in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, comes into the garden, and who does he first confront? Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? Now, technically, who ate the fruit first? Eve did. But God holds Adam primarily responsible. And the Bible holds the man responsible for the curse of sin that has been unleashed on all of creation. Husbands, let that truth sink in. Your wife is responsible for her own sin. Absolutely no question about that. But husbands, you bear a unique weight and responsibility in regards to the spiritual climate of your home as you lead or fail to lead your family into the things of God. So Abram is being confronted. And yes, Sarai is right. He has done wrong. And here's Abram's golden opportunity now to do the right thing. Never too late to do the right thing. It's his chance to say, forgive me, Sarai, did not shepherd you well. I repent. I was wrong. Now I will do what I can to make things right in this messed up situation. I'll talk with Hagar about her treatment of you. We'll get this all straightened out. Is that what he does? No, that's not what he does. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Again, that's more passivity on the part of Abram. He's still not loving his wife well. He's not doing Sarai any favors in this. He's not helping her in this conflict. And he's not loving Hagar well by helping Hagar and and standing up for her and the child that she has had with him. He's he's pretty much checking out. He's pretty much saying, you know what? (laughs) I'm staying out of this. This is awful. And so without any guidance, shepherding from Abram, Sarai is unleashed. Verse 6, then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. This is a mess. Everyone is sinning against everyone, and the cycle is just continuing. And here is now where we will meet the final and most important character in the story, And we will see God's graciousness, God's graciousness. Hagar runs away. But in running away from Abram's household, she's actually running away from the locusts of God's blessing and the promises of the gospel, as imperfect and flawed as Abram and Sarai are. Uh, As imperfect as they are, there's actually no better place on the planet to be than in their tent. And now, Hagar 
finds herself in a worse situation than before. She's a single, pregnant woman, all alone, no connections, no family, out in the elements, wild beasts, bandits and robbers around. This is an incredibly vulnerable and dangerous situation. There is no reason to believe that she's going to last very long out in the open wilderness like this. But suddenly, one of the most surprising twists happen, happens in this whole book. Uh, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. This is the first appearance of an enigmatic figure that will show up several more times in the Old Testament known as the angel of the Lord. There are some different views on who the angel of the Lord is. Some believe this is a very special angelic messenger who speaks on behalf of God. In fact, angel means messenger. However, uh, this being is so closely tied to the person of God himself that it's hard to see this person as a mere angel. Put mere in quotation marks. There's nothing mere about an angel, but but compared to God, everything is mere. <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's something about this, the, the, this figure, not just here, but in other parts where he, he shows up. Uh, in fact, when the angel speaks, he speaks as God, and, and, and Hagar will equate seeing the angel of the Lord with seeing God. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, it's the angel of the Lord who appears in the burning bush and speaks to Moses. And then a few verses later, we discover that it is God Himself speaking from this bush. In Judges 6, Gideon equates seeing the angel of the Lord with seeing God and, and, and then builds an altar for worship. And, and, and so it seems that what we've got here in these moments is actually what theologians call a theophany, a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Now, something happens that's astounding in verse 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? Do you, know, do you know that this is the only time in the Old Testament that a woman is addressed by name, by God Himself? This is an incredible honor given to, to a lowly Egyptian servant, nonetheless. God knows her. God knows her name, and God cares. He asks, where are you coming from? Where are you going? He's asking that not, not because he doesn't know. God knows everything. But we see God doing this elsewhere in Genesis, asking questions to, to draw out the hearts of the people he's talking to. And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. <clears throat> now, in one sense, <clears throat> we totally get that, right? <clears throat> it is hard in conflict to deal with the situation, especially when we feel like we've been the ones, uh, we're the ones that have been treated wrongly. And it can take time and effort and, and patience to work towards reconciliation and peace. But again, guys, we don't like waiting. And often we'd rather take the quick, easy way out and cut and run. We flee from conflict when the Bible calls us to work things out. We run from church to find another church when things get hard and the honeymoon period wears off with people we used to think were so wonderful, now not so much. Uh, we get impatient and we write people off, we break ties, we ignore them, we unfriend them on Facebook, whatever. Uh, there, there's different ways we can run. And we like to run because running is the path of least resistance. But on the other hand, very often the answer isn't running. Running. Often God calls us to a harder but better way. 
he does here for Hagar in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now that would be a very hard calling, wouldn't it? God is essentially calling Hagar to repent for her part in this sinful conflict and seek forgiveness. Now how humbling must that be? Go back to those people who treated me in that way? Are you kidding me? Submit to them? Now, I can see myself responding in that way. But that's not how Hagar responds. She, she's going to respond not with questions and objections, but with obedience. Now, I must say, just in case you're wondering, there are times in certain relationships and certain situations where it is actually wise to remove yourself from that situation. For example, if you're a, a married and you're in an abusive, uh, dangerous situation you know, like that and there, there's, uh, for you or for your, your kids, then that's a situation that, that, yes, wisdom dictates removing yourself from that. That's not most of the kinds of situations of conflict that we find ourselves in, though. Hagar hears the word of the Lord, and, and she's going to obey. And, and, and I'll tell you why I think Hagar is able to do this hard thing in a moment. But first, let's see what else God says in verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That word would have so encouraged Hagar. It's really a promise not unlike the promise given to Abram and Sarai. Uh, Hagar is going to become a great nation too. Now, the promise of worldwide blessing is not given to her. That's reserved for Abram and Sarai, but still, this is pretty good. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. That sounds familiar during Christmas time with a, another name, doesn't it? You shall call his name Ishmael because the, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I really want you, for the remainder of this message, to really latch on to that concept there. Uh, the Lord has listened, not just to you, but to your affliction. By the way, Ishmael means God hears, or God listens. And again, we see God's tender, loving care emphasized. Yes, Hagar is a sinner. Yes, she did wrong towards her mistress. God knows all about that. And yet God has, still has compassion and, and, and has paid attention to the affliction of this lowly servant girl. How encouraging that is when we sin, when we mess up. That does not mean that God's ears are deaf. Even then, He hears us when we cry out in our misery and affliction. You don't have to be perfect to be heard by God. Isn't that wonderful news? Now, the encouraging promises God gives Hagar do have some darker notes. Verse 12 says, Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> How would you like someone to call you that? Maybe someone has called you that. I don't know. She'll be a wild donkey of a man, somewhat uncontrollable, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael will have some of that same fierce, defiant spirit as, as Hagar, and he won't let anyone try to control him, and there will be conflict between he and his kinsmen. 
And Hagar's response to all of this is remarkable. In an act of praise, she gives God a new name. I don't think you'll find anyone else in the Bible giving God a name, do, do, doing what, what uh, Hagar is doing here. Uh, again, this chapter in all of its sin and sordidness gives amazing, gracious honor to this non-Hebrew Gentile woman. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now, I think that's the key. That's the key to Hagar's attitude. This is why she's able to return back to Abram and Sarai with humility and repentance, because she becomes convinced of something that Abram and Sarai forgot, namely, that God looks after his own, that God is kind and loving and merciful, and he looks after his servants. Friends, when we sin against God, when we turn away from trusting God, when we put our hopes in our efforts, our schemes, when other things, even good desires, become more important to us than God himself, we are, in essence, not believing that God sees us, that he has compassion on us, that he cares about our affliction, and that he will look after us. We don't believe that. And we don't believe that, and so we think that we have to take care of our needs, uh, whatever we think we need in our timing, in our way, and we'll use and abuse and run over whomever gets in our way to get whatever we want, because God's not going to look after me, so I've got to get mine myself. But when you begin to grasp what Hagar is beginning to grasp, that God hears our affliction and is looking after us, then there comes an increased sense of peace and security. You don't have to to fight God or fight others to get your own way. You can wait on God, and you can trust in Him. And and Hagar was going to have to exercise some faith here because she has been sinned against by these people, but but she's going to have to now wait on God for God to deal with those people in their sin in His time and His way, and He will. He's taking Abram and Sarah on a journey of sanctification, and they have lessons to learn. when you realize God looks after you, you can trust in Him. You can wait on Him. You can do what the Scriptures tell us to do later on, to cast our anxieties on Him. Why? Because, the Scripture says, He cares for you. He looks after you. What a life-changing revelation that is for you and I to realize that even in our sin towards God and our foolishness towards others, that even then, God cares for his people. He cares for us. And Hagar, in her awe and amazement of God's loving, caring kindness, names God. And also in an act of worship, names this place to commemorate this monumental occasion, Bir Lahai Rai, the well of the living one who sees me. And strengthened by God's ministry to her, Hagar, an Egyptian servant, overshadows Abram and Sarai in this moment, and in the end demonstrates greater faith and godliness than her masters, as she returns to those whom have wronged her. She really is, in this chapter, the only person that is listening to God and obeying Him. And she humbly returns to the tents of Abram and Sarai, and and we can presume she asks for forgiveness, and, and she recounts to them her incredible encounter with God, 
Verse 15 tells us that Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son Ishmael. How else would Abram know what to name the boy apart from the witness of Hagar? And Ishmael's name means God hears. And so every time Abram or Sarai or Hagar would call this boy's name, every time they would get the much-needed reminder that through their trials and through their affliction, even the affliction of waiting, the kind loving, and compassionate God hears. There are many who believe the appearance of the angel of the Lord whom Hagar met in her affliction was not only a theophany, but more than that, a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And that Hagar was blessed with a glimpse of the true offspring to come that would bring salvation to sinners like her. Indeed, Charles Spurgeon writes that this angel of the Lord was that great messenger of the covenant who was afterwards to appear in actual flesh and blood, but who many a time before was, he was born in, at Bethlehem and anticipated his descent to earth and visited it in human form. His delights were ever with the sons of men, and so when there was a message to be brought to men, that blessed one, the second person of the divine unity, condescended to be the bearer of it. Once again, someone talking brilliantly, and it's not me. Indeed, the appearance of God to Hagar is a pale foreshadowing of Christmas, where God, on seeing the affliction of His people in bondage to sin and Satan and death, would in compassion visit His people in the form of a man. And He would do for us more than He did for Hagar. He wouldn't just give an encouraging message of hope, but, but would die on the cross to secure that hope paying for sins and rising from the dead so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord in their affliction would be heard by God and be saved. The cross and the empty tomb are the ultimate proof that God knows you, God loves you, and God hears. Let's pray.